Have you ever considered the possibility that what you love affects how you understand things? Who would win in a thumb war, religious truth or neighborly kindness? We explore the power of love right now in the NCE Spotlight, your home for fresh insights from the ongoing translation of the New Century edition of Swedenborg's Theological Works. Hey, Jonathan. Hey there. As always, thank you so much for welcoming us into your exceptionally full and yet very tidy office. I've got Curtis here with me. Hey, hey, did you guys start already? I'm here. Glad you could make it. I'll just move these books and you can sit down right here. Thank you, thank you. So I'm so looking forward to seeing what what insights you have for us this week, what little uh, passages you found in your editing work that that we get to just kind of reflect on and see what what comes. You'll actually see at the side of your chair there, there's a seat belt that I would recommend you fasten because... Um, <laughs> For one Yikes. thing, we're going into Secrets of Heaven, Volume 4. Click. Uh, we've done a few quotes from Secrets of Heaven, Volume 4 before, but we've done a whole lot from Secrets of Heaven, Volume 3. So it seemed like time to move forward. And uh, the topic today may seem very abstract, but the more I study Swedenborg's works— I don't know if you've noticed. Have you noticed that he uses the words truth and goodness a lot? <laughs> oh, I, he, th I thought I was the only remember, one who picked up on that. <laughs> he uses that quite a bit and the relationship between them. And it's interesting to me because he'll say, he'll refer to them as being in a kind of a marriage. And yet the more I read what he says about them, it's quite an unequal marriage. You know, one of those is much more important than the other one and has been kind of undervalued by his time period. Mm -hmm. And so these are three passages about how truth and goodness interact. Uh, this one is 2928. Uh, another thing I should add is that he says that there are what he calls spiritual people who are oriented to truth and there are heavenly people who are oriented to goodness and all through his system you have these two different types so he's talking here about spiritual people who are oriented to truth and talks about what their relationship to goodness is the reason truth is attributed to spiritual people is that truth is what introduces them to goodness. That is, faith is what introduces them to love for others. They do good out of a devotion to truth. And the only way they know it is good is that they've been taught that it is. As a result, their conscience is also founded on religious truth. So he contrasts these with heavenly people who have a perception and so it's very interesting to me that these spiritual people, boy, that makes teaching very important for that particular type, doesn't it? Because the only way you know something is good is if somebody told you, somebody taught you. Mm-hmm. I could definitely see that you could get into religion or spirituality 
because you have maybe an interest in the field or maybe you you felt like you needed help with something particular in your life and so you're feeling like well maybe god can help me with this or or religion can help me with it and then once you get in there and start poking around you hear oh okay i've got to love everyone i got to love my neighbor as myself all right that that seems like it fits i can do it versus getting pulled in there by this desire to help everyone and you're oh good this is framework that helps me do it they're they're two very distinct things yes right and i just can't think of anybody in history who ever paid more attention to these two things than swedenborg did you know how they interrelate and what happens to them in the in the human mind and i think they're important when you first read them they seem so abstract but they're important because they relate to our thoughts and feelings and our whole experience is about our thoughts and feelings and how to have different thoughts and different feelings and that sort of thing. So here's a second passage, 3153. Unless we view it in a single sweep of thought, the inner meaning here appears by its very nature to be too obscure to understand all the more so because the subject matter is unfamiliar. Take, for instance, the way truth is called up out of our earthly self and introduced into goodness in our rational mind when we are regenerating. Mm. I think I should hit pause there and explain that a little bit, that he talks a lot in this part of Secrets of Heaven about a rational mind that you would think would just be Oh, your your thinking mind, the part of you that's like higher than sort of animalistic, um, you know, feelings or whatever. But no, he what he talks about is the rational mind is a very high thing that we're hardly in touch with. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's talking about how truth is pulled up out of our earthly self and introduced into goodness in our rational mind when we're regenerating. It was interesting as you read that for me to observe the process in myself of him losing me. Because I, I, you were, you had read the beginning part when he was saying, you know, this is unfamiliar, so it's a little hard to grasp. And so I thought to myself, well, I'm going to grasp it as he says it. But it was as soon as you piled like three terms on each other that were things I had never seen or never seen a picture of or a microscope slide of, it became too much. I couldn't quite get what he's talking about, which I think really drives home. It's the unfamiliarity. Like I was able to, when learning, for example, biology in college, I could get it after I had really seen and understood this is what a cell is. And then you're starting to learn about the little pieces of the cell. But to have something like the truth in your earthly self, and you don't know what is, wait, what, what's truth in the first place? What's right. earthly self? What's right. rational self? It pulls yeah. it up into, there's goodness there. I'm out. <laughs> like I, right. I, can, I can get the words and I can kind of parrot them back, but I don't know if I can trust my mental picture is actually reflecting what he's talking about. You might not be happy then to hear this next bit. <laughs> uh, <he> says, <laughs> my seatbelt's on. I'll be fine. Good. Most people today know so little about the subject that they do not even realize it happens. The main reason for their ignorance is that few today regenerate. Uh oh. Hey, come on, man. What is this? <laughs> Those that do fail to learn from doctrine that neighborly kindness. Oh, now that I can kind of get a hold of. 
is what religious truth is introduced into and unites with, or that this occurs in the rational mind. They do not learn that our state then changes radically so that religious truth no longer directs our thoughts to neighborly kindness, but neighborly kindness leads our thoughts to the truth. I love that. I just think that's so great. And with Swedenborg's, this kind of a number is a perfect example of those kinds of things where he writes, where he does actually end up creating these like clear demarcations in the mind and how the different levels work and and that relationship between truth and goodness. And uh, I love I love the sense of like, oh, okay, there's like scaffolding here. And I like latch onto it because I'm like, okay, yes, I see how that can happen. That it's like truth is coming in and that it's uniting to goodness. And, you know, just, and I think, I feel like it must be in that fourth volume of Secrets of Heaven that I can't wait to read that is, that does go into that whole, the rational level of the mind is this like extensive treatment uh, and you're getting to understand how it operates. Um and I just, that is such a beautiful picture of how the religious truth comes in, connects with neighborly kindness, and then neighborly kindness then is what's guiding and running the show, leading the way. Yeah, I love that. I don't know if I fully understand or have viscerally felt what it's talking about, but the um, uh, it seems like a clearer example than a lot that he gives. He talks a lot about, well, it goes from truth to good or from good to truth, and it's often a little baffling to me. But here where it says neighborly kindness, that really helps me. Oh, mm -hmm. neighborly kindness. I can kind of wrap my head around that. And the thought that, yes, you start from truth and you think it would be good to write somebody a note right now, you know, thank them or, or something. I should do that. I should do that. And then you get to the point where it really seems to me that he's talking about a state in which neighborly kindness has been successfully installed in your heart, like you actually feel it, you actually care. And then that leads your thoughts to the truth. I don't know exactly, um, you know, if I had to give three examples, I often wish Swedenborg had given three examples, but... Um, mm -hmm. The, and sometimes he does, uh, but where neighborly kindness, is it just the, telling you more truth about that person? Like your neighborly kindness in your heart can tell you that your neighbor is, is, is suffering right now or that this would be helpful to them or this is who they are. You know, that kind of thing? I don't know, but he, can you read he says that? elsewhere that the kind of truth you get when neighborly's kindness takes over is much greater than the original truth that you had. Okay, cool. I thought about Mr. Rogers, and I didn't, when I heard that phrase, neighborly kindness, mm -hmm. it definitely struck me that, that that I can picture. And at first I thought of somebody like Mr. Rogers. I was like, well, why right. am I, well my daughter's been watching Mr. Rogers, and oh yeah, he's got that song, Won't You Be My Neighbor? That's like his brand, is to talk about it. So I thought, okay, let's say there's somebody like that that is just interested in being kind to people. And they, with, with delight, stumble on these ideas 
or truths that teach you how to effectively be kind to people. It, in my mind, it was a very clear picture. Oh yeah, right. Neighborly mm. kindness could find these little concepts that make up religion and think, oh, that's great. That's exactly what I need. It's it's like I've been I've been repairing my shed with this this rock, but I just found a hammer. Right, like the neighborly <laughs> kindness is already trying to do all those good things, but it delights in the effectiveness of these spiritual tools. So to me, that that felt very tangible. I can I can understand how a spirit of neighborly kindness can grab that stuff and assimilate it, and then and be just overjoyed. Like I got, oh, this is great. This is just what I was looking for. And then, but still, those things are taken out and used by that same person who, you know, that same embodiment of neighborly kindness who was you know perhaps like a little under equipped to really serve the neighbor before but now is 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 making it happen but with a lot more potency i can imagine it's something that you're we are all clumsy at at first and you try to get better and better at loving people effectively and and wisely and so you're in the market for a tremendous amount of truth and information about who people are what they go through, you know, what sort of suffering they have. And the more we go through our lives, we realize, oh, I feel compassion for people who have this now because I've been through that or something like mm-hmm. it, or I can imagine. And um, that would help you be kinder and kinder until you're that embodiment of love. Or there's some passage where Swedenborg says that we become um, saturated with goodwill as a result of constant practice. Mm-hmm. Mm. This third and final one that I've got for today is a 3066. I thought this was quite astonishing. Uh, He starts out with almost kind of a slap in the face or something. I mean, I don't know. It's an amazing statement that he leads with here. And he talks very much in here about the relationship of truth and, and love and various other elements in there. And I just found this a very, um, I don't know, kind of an amazing uh, statement. Here's, Here's the slap. Truth never teaches anyone anything. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I thought that was sort of like its thing, you know? (laughs) I know. Like that's what you're known for. What do you mean? (laughs) Truth never teaches anyone anything. Only that you you don't play basketball, (laughs) right? (laughs) Only the desire for truth does. In the absence of desire, truth does wash up against the ear like waves of sound, but it does not (laughs) enter the memory. What makes it enter the memory and stay there? is a desire for it. I'll hit pause and just say, that makes so much sense to me because, yeah, you know, we've all been in the situation of, of talking to children or maybe you've been in the classroom and you're talking to people who don't care about, <laughs> you know, what you're saying. Like, Never. it has zero effect. I, I know you haven't experienced this, Curtis, but but uh, I, I have occasionally bored some people, and um, <laughs> um, but if someone was desperate to know whatever it is, you know, when you suddenly need no, I need to know right now. Uh, 
it completely changes the dynamic and the learning experience goes way up when there's that interest. He goes on, what makes it enter the memory and stay there is a desire for it. A good feeling is like the ground in which truth is planted like seed. The quality of the soil or the desire, though, determines what grows out of the planted seed. The goal or purpose, see, we're getting more and more elements in here, aren't we? Mm -hmm. The goal or purpose dictates the character of the soil, the desire, and therefore the character of what grows from the seed. And That's then he so finally cool. says, if you prefer love itself dictates, because love is the goal and purpose of everything. We cannot adopt anything as our goal and purpose, but what we love. That's so cool. I, I was thinking when you're mentioning the truth part is that not only do you need a desire for it, but your desire changes what truth you hear anyway. You know, just the way that you can, you've maybe experienced boring people, but it's like, or you teach something or you share something and everybody gets a completely different insight from it or hears it yeah. completely differently and learns entirely different things based on you just saying one thing. And so I like how in that second part that you read, it acknowledges that the love actually changes what comes out of the seed. You'd think like, okay, we're planting this pl seed in this soil, and so we know what's going to grow there. But this is saying that actually the the love that we have actually affects what even grows from a seed. Uh, and I feel like that kind of reflects that way that our desire changes how we hear things even. It's amazing. This was a huge project of Swedenborg's because he lived in the time of the Enlightenment, and people were just nuts about truth. They just loved truth. The truth was the greatest thing ever. And he is trying over and over again to get love back into the mix and give it a primacy and to say that, oh, no, truth. And so I love this passage because truth comes in at the beginning and is just <laughs> said it doesn't teach anybody anything. <laughs> you know, it completely gets slammed right at the beginning. And then from there on, it's all about desire. What is the desire doing? That's the soil. What's the purpose? The pur I, I love that word purpose in there too, because I can think about what I love, but the purpose is really like, what am I doing on the planet? You know, what do I care about the most? What do I want to see in our world? And uh, those things shape the input that comes in. I'm thinking about soil. And what are some examples of that phenomenon he's describing? You can have more or less of the different kinds of nutrients in the soil, which will affect how even the same species of plant grows, how, mm -hmm. how large it grows. I think that the depth of the soil will affect it. If it's, it's just like in the, the parable of the sower, if the soil is really shallow, you might get a stunted growth and oh yeah and then if there's any toxins i'm just just rolling over in my mind different ways that we you see that where you get the soil itself affecting what can even even if you say it's the same seed the actual right. plant that grows out of it can be quite different based on conditions 
Oh, yeah. That's yeah, it like, could be much more nutritious or, yeah, exactly. Yeah, first, first-hand experience with gardening over here is like, you think what you're doing is, I'm going to buy these plants and plant them in my garden and they're going to grow there. But then you realize that like 90% of gardening is just the soil preparation, you know, getting the soil yeah. right and then understanding like which direction does it face? You know, it's all about how is this soil doing and what's it, what does it consist of? You get your soil tested, all this kind of stuff to figure out, okay, what can actually grow here? And then that totally limits these plants are just not ever going to grow in this soil um, versus these other ones. And Oh, cool. Yeah, it's amazing. So those kind of analogies really help me start to get a handle on what seem like abstractions, but then you, oh, wait, no, I get that. I see, I see what he's talking about. Yeah. Think, and you, you talking about the, the lopsided marriage of goodness and truth, but it's, it's a total dependency on each other. That's the divine way is that nothing is an island because at first you have people in Swedenborg's day thinking the truth is everything. And he says, truth doesn't teach anybody anything. The desire for truth does. But it can only do that if there's truth around. You, if you had all the desire in the world and there was no truth to be found, it couldn't take hold either. So even though we're taking truth down a peg, it's still, if it doesn't show up to the party, party's off. Yeah, it makes me think of right. like the sun shining, you know, and space just being looks void you know and empty but it's you need something there to catch the light or you wouldn't even know it's there and i was just hearing about that on the radio there's some like amazing thing going into space that's going to capture the light of the oldest stars and they need these reflectors there and and they're getting them set up and it's like that's amazing you know as you think about that as being like truth being like okay even though i know this is sort of playing around with swedenborg's like light is I mean, it's heat and light at the same time, but, you know, you need something to capture that, uh, that light. And I think that analogy works here. You know, if love is just like radiating out into the world, it needs something to take it and reflect it. And that's what truth can do. You know, then you can do something like photosynthesis, you know. And a lot of what Swedenborg is trying to do is to inject a higher quality of truth because he sees a lot of good people who are living good lives, uh, but the teachings are bad. And so they're not getting as far as they might if they had better understanding Yeah. about who God is, you know, that God's not mad at them or what's going to happen after death or, you know, the last judgment or all, all these different things. And so he's a lot of what he's trying to do is up the the truth side of the equation. Yeah. Even when he's talking in these passages about love, it's truth talking about love um, because there's already a, a goodness in a lot of people and that's how he hopes the whole thing will move forward. Yeah, it really is like two sides of the same, like you can't, you can't get away from one or the other because as soon as you talk about well, what's really true, the only way to define what's really true is what's most loving. You know, that's that's the the end you get right. to in Swedenborg, and then it just circles around and around. So, well, it's been delightful to 
spend this time exploring these abstractions, Jonathan. <laughs> if you lift on the belt buckle there, you can release your seat belts and, okay, great. and you're free to move about the cabin. I'm going to give it another okay. minute in case anything else comes along. <laughs> That's right. You got to let the dizziness settle. But no, I think we've really grasped something here and and it's these are ideas that are going to just continue to percolate in my mind, I can tell, over the next uh, days and stretches of time. So, Well, the, the unfamiliar nature of the subject that Swedenborg was blaming for its opaque or opacity, um, the way we fix that is to become familiar with it. I think that a good understanding of good and truth takes a lifetime to build, but if we were all building it, then we would be able to get what he's talking about and what, what yes. these, because all, all the truths seem to be based on an understanding of the goodness and truth. So I don't mind at all putting in some reps, learning That's about right. the goodness and truth. That's right. We've done our work. We've had a good workout today. <laughs> all right. Well, I look forward to next time, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. I hope your heart was uplifted and your mind inspired by this week's NCE Spotlight. Subscribe to the Inside Off the Left Eye podcast to tap into this stream of fresh insights and join us on our excursions into the historical context of Swedenborg's life and works. All passages quoted in this episode are sneak peeks from upcoming volumes of the New Century Edition translation of Secrets of Heaven. If you've benefited from the work of the Swedenborg Foundation through Off the Left Eye and the New Century Edition, consider supporting us with a donation. We are a nonprofit and depend on the support of our donors. To give, go to swedenborg.com donate. And thank you for listening. <laughs>